news, gossip, or gaffes, social media has profoundly reshaped the way we communicate and interact with the world. In the September-October issue of Film Comment, Nick Pinkerton explored its effect on film culture. Reflecting on the odd feedback loop of takes, Pinkerton wrote, quote, This ongoing game of positioning and repositioning in order to locate an as-yet-unclaimed position on a film suggests a mental badminton, with the various arbiters of culture trying to anticipate where the shuttlecock of consensus is going to drop and placing themselves advantageously to return the volley. On social media, you can watch this process of staking unoccupied positions and forming factions in real time, but here the opinions appear by the drive-by form of pithy squibs rather than fully developed pieces. There's not much space to back up an argument in 140 characters, and if you're called out, you can always explain that you are just trying to start a conversation, and what's everyone getting so uptight for anyways? End quote. For this episode of the Film Comment Podcast, I was joined by Pinkerton, Cameron Collins of The Ringer, and Mark Harris of Vulture to discuss the loathsome, wonderful, and useful aspects of social media. Hello and welcome to the Film Comet Podcast. My name is Violet Luca. I'm the digital editor and today I'm joined by... Nick Pinkerton, a regular contributor to the Film Comment magazine and other sundry mastheads. Cameron Austin Collins, staff writer at The Ringer. Mark Harris, freelance writer and vulture columnist. So today we're going to be discussing, um, Nick, your piece about social media and cinephilia. One thing that you actually didn't get into in your piece, which I think it would be interesting to hear you talk about, is sort of the phenomenon of people who don't actually publish criticism or journalistic stories or books, but are just sort of personalities. And they sort of dole out their opinions on Twitter without actually sitting and doing the hard work of being in front of a Microsoft Word document and filling it up and making connections and writing, as it were. Well, I don't necessarily have any problem with that. I mean, you can't have a film culture that is comprised entirely of people who depend largely or even in part on writing, you know, journalistic criticism to pay their bills. I think also there are a lot of strange social practices that exist around the discussion of film, certainly, and I'm sure this extends to anything else via the medium of Twitter or, you know, on the feed, mm -hmm. where there's, first of all, from folks who are just sort of jumping into uh, one's timeline, there is a, a strange demanding of accountability which also exists in like comments section culture where there is this idea that you have to be available at all times to make yourself accountable for whatever some rando wants out of you some <laughs> some 400 pound kid at home as our future president <laughs> said um and conversely for the sort of chattering class there is a complete lack of liability for these sort of drive-by comments because 
tweet is never going to be subjected to the same level of scrutiny, nor could it possibly be subjected to the same le- level of scrutiny <laughs> that a sort of worked through pieces. But I mean, to a certain degree, I think we're all guilty of this because hopefully there's some gulf between the personality you try to develop as a writer doing long form pieces and you try to approach that i think with a little more gravitas and you have also this outlet to basically dump off all the idiotic jokes that would otherwise just evaporate into thin air i'm thinking about this issue of gravitas i do certainly take writing criticism seriously but i would also like to think that some of that imp online kind of makes his way into some of my more serious writing when, you know, sometimes, honestly, I think Twitter's great for being that singular asshole voice who just doesn't want to write the review, mm. who just doesn't want to take the time. It's good for taking the piss. It is. Mm. Twitter Twitter makes me believe that it's possible that some things just don't deserve <clears throat> 500 words. But on the other hand, yeah, I mean, it's all the id, you know, like this is, I think this is something that I only started thinking about in the era of Trump, but I think it's true of and not really Trump so much as people online with either Confederate flag avatars or anime girls or whatever who say really awful things. But it's just this this part of your psychology that just is not giving a fuck about all the rest. And I, I'm wary of that, but I value that sometimes. I don't value it when I'm the person who's the target. But I do I, I do value the, yeah, the feeling of saying, well, fuck that movie. I believe it was my friend Brian Bolovarak who uh, made a crack on Twitter about how great Ambrose Bierce would uh, would have been on Twitter. <laughs> and it's absolutely true. And I always think of this. The most succinct pan that I have ever heard comes from Ambrose Bierce, which is, this book's covers are too far apart. <laughs> there. Uh, I'm going to defend Twitter a little bit, I think, as something that, at least holds the possibility of being other than a repository of, you know, the quick sneering takedown, although that is certainly the form it it has the most appetite for and that offers its users the most reward. I think in in some ways, I mean, Nick, you said in your piece, I'm going to paraphrase it badly, but the job of critic is to serve the art and communicate with your reader. And in some ways, Twitter is an amalgamation of everything that fights against that. It, it's performative. It values a, a really noisy, contrarian pronouncement that you can then run away from over a thoughtful thing that takes more than two sentences to articulate. It, I think, often becomes a kind of show-offy dialogue among critics rather than real communication with a reader it doesn't value ambivalence so all of those things are really bad but i've also read thoughtful things said about movies on twitter that have sparked sort of thoughtful weird comic book bubble sized conversations about Mm -hmm. not a whole movie but an aspect of a movie on twitter and sometimes i think twitter would be better if it was 25 percent more like writing some Long-form film criticism would be better if it was 20% more like a human conversation. Like, I I don't think a completely austere, removed Olympian style of long-form criticism is necessarily the only ideal. Well, I mean, as with any 
platform or application, it's absolutely neutral, of course. It's just what we do with it. I mean, the YouTube comment section as a independent entity isn't virulently racist. It just so happens that every YouTube comment section that <laughs> I <sounds> scroll through <laughs> is a ocean of racial epithets. Mm -hmm. So, you know, absolutely, I don't think that there's anything inherently wicked about Twitter. I mean, <laughs> I use it occasionally competently and I enjoy, you know, flushing my time and life down the toilet while scrolling through it as much as anyone else. So, I mean, I absolutely agree that it can be you know, a worthwhile platform for dialoguing and for kind of keeping up on cultural product in real time rather than having everything to be, you know, a considered 5,000 words. Sometimes you just have a little squib in, a little, you know, feuilleton that you want to throw in. Mm. And sometimes it is fun to, you know, just use it like a Roman candle, light it, scamper off and, <laughs> you know, exactly. throw your little stink bomb and then go out and have dinner. <laughs> For your own purposes, what would you say is your ideal use of social media? Well, I mean, I would say I came to it relatively late. I mean, I've been, I, I actually was thinking about this to my horror the other day. I've now been online for more of my life than I have not. Yeah. And this has been the case for a couple of years now. So I've never been a Luddite or anything like that. I also, for the first several years in which I was trying to launch myself on a journalistic uh, criticism career, didn't do any of the things that one is meant to do, i.e. self-promote, mm -hmm. even you know, to say, here's something that I wrote, because I was stupid, of course, uh, and had this idea that you could just sort of push things out into the world and that, you know, talent would out and I'll be fine that way, which I think that's incredibly naive. I find something somewhat touching about that naivete, but you can't go home again. And I <laughs> discovered in due time that uh, my peers were lapping me by adapting themselves to the usages of these different platforms. And so, you know, I waded into the fray. I don't think it adds an enormous amount <laughs> to my life. I love the fact that somebody like, you know, your film society's Kent Jones doesn't touch any of that with a 10 foot pole. But he's Kent Jones. But he's Kent Jones. Yes, precisely. <laughs> I mean, it's one of these things where, you know, everybody when, say, Radiohead put out an album for free, uh, everybody's like, oh, this is an incredible new way of uh, doing things. It, it's like, if you're Radiohead, right. if you've been famous for 15 years yeah. already, <laughs> then this is a great new way to do things. So up to a certain point, I don't feel like anybody who's kind of getting into the scrum today and wants to be heard above the din, or at least contribute to that din. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anybody can really cut through it. You're sort of obligated to. No, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I don't have LinkedIn. So something like Twitter is, is pretty useful for giving a sense of who you are. But for me, you know, I have the most fun on Twitter when I'm just watching other people. I love to watch critics fight on Twitter. 
I do not know. This is Kardashian level for me to watch people with blue check marks at <laughs> major publications fight. It's like that and watching cat videos of cats fighting on YouTube are like <laughs> my perfect art. You know, I don't have a Pauline Kale and Angie Saris, you know? I have people on Twitter fighting that way. And I actually do find that there are some important things that I see getting worked through in real time um, in a way that's valuable to me, more valuable even than reading like a full essay of something where I feel like the person has had the conversation with themselves and with their editor and I'm getting something that maybe is still open-ended but feels like a product. I like to see things in process and I like to figure out and trace the ways that the things I've seen in process wind up in people's writing. Mm -hmm. For the example, the first person I noticed in this regard was Emily Nussbaum because she would go out of her way to ask people on Twitter questions about things and, you know, crowdsource feedback or crowdsource which few episode was it when blah, 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 blah. That'd be the kind of question that I would know the answer to. And I think that that's weird and great. Better that than, you know, when I follow Joyce Carol Oates and... Oh, God. I know. It's the only person I have blocked. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. I mean, fair, to be honest. Fair. One thing that I worry about a little bit is something you sort of touched on just now is the degree to which everyone is aware of the performative aspect of writing really at all times and the degree to which that might contribute to a stymieing or a overcaution when actually writing because this is traditionally a fairly solitary endeavor where you're stuffed in your airless garret, assuming everyone here lives in a garret like myself, <laughs> and you're faced away from the window and trying to focus your energies as completely as possible on sussing out what you're working on, as opposed to having these sort of breathing holes cut into your schedule and being able to throw things out to the room mm. and also being able to take the temperature of that room mm. whilst on deadline and being able to or the possibility existing to then react to reactions in real time as consensuses or perceptions of consensus are forming. Again, this isn't something that is necessarily happening, but mm. certainly I worry about the possibility of contamination that this brings with it. No, that's a really valuable point. If you're auto-censoring, or not even censoring, but sort of like taking, you know, a half-formed thought that someone else had, and then you you're just taking that thought or you're completing it or you're altering it in some way that's sort of, I wouldn't say that's a cheat, but it's fundamentally altering what the function of criticism is. And I'm not going to always say to the detriment. No, certainly not. And I should say also that, you know, always there's nothing new under the sun. And certainly 20 years ago, you'd be going to a screening room. You would be mm -hmm. actually taking the temperature of a room. You would be working out things in real time. So this platonic ideal of somebody like existing in a total bathysphere, consulting only with their own deepest inner life and soul, that's never did exist. Well, no, but I, and it shouldn't either you know you go to any sort of like panel on film criticism and it's like well you know you should be pulling from art criticism you should be pulling from you know music blah 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 
but more often than not, people just pull from social media. And I think sometimes that's good and sometimes it's just lazy. Yeah, I'm not sure it's lazy so much as it's easy. I mean, you can view Twitter as a necessary evil. I sort of view it as an unnecessary non-evil. Like, <laughs> uh, you know, I I kind of like it. I don't have um, your appetite for watching critics fight because I do think that gets really performative really oh, absolutely. quickly yeah, and also very labely. <laughs> like there's a lot of, you know, well, if you say that, you're allying yourself with the blah, blah, blahs, mm-hmm. uh, which is just like the death of thought to me. But sure, I mean, with social media, I always proceed from the premise that nobody needs to know what I think of anything like it my my opinion is not demanded by the world. So what am I offering by putting my opinion of a movie out into the world? Sometimes I feel like it is a great function that is not matched by long form journalism, which is if I see a movie that I really love on VOD, I can say instantly, check this out and try in 140 characters to come up with something more specific and less generic than it's great. You should see it to try to figure out like what in that compressed space can I possibly say that might induce some of my followers to say, Oh, that does sound interesting. So that's one thing. The other thing is if I'm watching an old movie, which is how I spend a lot of my time, I love just saying I'm watching this and I've noticed this specifically weird thing in it and sometimes i will even take a picture of that and tweet it because people who love old movies are the best people on twitter and you <laughs> never know what kind of weird response you're going to get yeah. Yeah. like someone else loves this old delmer dave's movie or you know notice this odd thing in imitation of life that you thought only you noticed that's really fun and then sometimes the third thing is you don't want to say something about a movie you want to say something about something really small and weird and specific in either a movie or a bunch of movies you've Mm. seen some trope that you've just realized has become a trope some cliche that nobody's identified as a cliche yet some performer who is always great but whose name you haven't seen on twitter i feel like that anything that gets a the ball rolling in terms of Making people notice stuff that I love seems to me a purely positive value of social media, maybe one of the only ones. And it should be added that Mark is objectively much better than either of us on Twitter, <laughs> <laughs> to the tune of 37.7 thousand followers. If, if you subtract all of the political rage, there's like 14 good movie tweets in there. You just have to dig for them. We're sort of reaching this crisis point where we sort of have an angry egg running for president. Like, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, it's really, um, I mean, if you watch the debate like I did last night, these things work themselves into our speech, into a vernacular where it's, I think the New York Times calculated this. Obviously, no one speaks perfectly, myself included, but there were two real sentences that Trump spoke. Everything else was just fragments. Yeah, it, the way that it, the meanness, maybe we're talking about the, the, the willingness to confront, the willingness to sort of perform, how that is seeping into other aspects of culture that obviously politics is so performative, but it's coming into different areas of life that it never really existed before. Not always to the benefit, let's say. No, in the present circumstances, certainly not. Yeah. I wanted to maybe roll back for a moment because there's something about this culture of responding to responses mm, yeah. that I think is worth addressing. And 
One thing that I think can't be overemphasized is the fact that the economics of journalistic criticism or journalistic cultural commentary, and I don't have figures on this, so I'm going with my gut. I have a feeling people are on the whole called to turn out more verbiage than they previously were. Absolutely. And I think that... And faster. And, and faster. faster. Because it's and like you with, don't exist if you don't. <laughs> and with less oversight. This, again, I don't have any numbers on this, but it seems to me anyone who is actually trying to make a go of things, whether from you know, some kind of staff position or as a freelancer, has to be on the grind to an unusual degree. And I think that this feeds into this tendency to respond to the responses because it's very difficult when seeing and analyzing or going through a piece of work to have actually worthwhile insights into the work <laughs> that takes some time. It does not come immediately. And in lieu of that, when you are sweating bullets, staring down a deadline, what do you have at hand? You have the idea of consensus that seems to be forming in your timeline or in the other articles that are starting to crop up. So when you have your back to the wall and you do not have the luxury of writer's block, that's a very easy route to go to respond to what the responses are mm -hmm. rather than to get under the hood of the work itself, which in the best of circumstances is going to take time and effort that isn't always there to be spent. Right. Or intentionally write a polemic or intentionally position yourself against something in the hopes of being a different voice when in reality those objections that you might have, one or two may be valid and then the rest are just sort of foisted, auto-generated uh, outrage that really don't hold water and yet it's like oh well as you cite what happened the backlash to boyhood well i mean i don't want to be in the position of accusing other people of canting hypocrisy and of not believing the positions that they're staking out right that being said <laughs> <laughs> yeah just the phrase you used the positions they're staking out mm. it is indicative of what a gigantic cultural change we have gone through that positions are now things that you plant a flag in they're not really exploratory they're they're not searching their their stances and mm -hmm. especially if you are a critic who wants to get noticed the the one thing you can do on Twitter that will get you noticed more than saying something offensive is being the person to tweet, I think what you just said is really offensive. Mm -hmm. Like, that will plant your flag, yeah. you know? And that will start the fight. And there are people I've seen make a social media virtual career out of it. I'm sort of interested, though, in people who use Twitter frequently and refuse its form like there's this critic ah. i really like nick davis um yes. who his tweets are which are sort of one tweet movie reviews are beautiful like if you drop them in water they would become 350 word paragraphs they're <laughs> like these there is not a character wasted mm. richard brody it's like 
here is something I want to say about this in 42 tweets. Like <laughs> if it's too long for a tweet, too bad. Or He's some just... some passages from an interview in Liberation. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like there is yeah. no he has no concern with the character limit of Twitter. And I think that's sort of great. He is the writer he is. He is not going to be constrained or dictated to by format. And yet he obviously likes the format and the feedback and the back and forth enough to to be there. So mm-hmm. I think Absolutely. it's I think it's great that in terms of film criticism. Twitter can be a home for people for whom it's not a natural language. It's good to have those different approaches, I think. Maybe this is just making the best of a, a bad thing, but generally it's it's at this point hard for me to be surprised by someone's taste on Twitter if I follow them for long enough and I kind of understand what their politics are, understand what memes they tweet of Joan Crawford or whomever. I kind of have a sense of what they like, but I've noticed that I've, I've really become attracted to writers whose taste still manages to surprise me. You know, people who, for example, that I didn't expect to like Eastwood Sully, who are on the right side of history and liked it, or people whose way of interacting with Twitter still allows for, I want to get away from the word nuance, even though I value it, but but allows for some mystery. Like mm-hmm. allows, allow, I mean, I feel this way about Brody as well. I'm always shocked. <laughs> yeah, I'm always shocked right. by what he's going to wind up saying about about a film. And but that's, that's also in his writing too. It's also in his writing, and it doesn't. And I know some people may disagree with me on this. It doesn't feel like trolling to me. That's the yeah. other thing. Like the kind of surprised by your taste that isn't the shock of realizing someone hates something for not a very good reason, or feel or, or staking a position, as Nick said. Um, there's there's this a category of person online who manages to be kind of beautifully surprising. And I feel even if we don't agree that it's worth my time to think about how this person thinks. It seems hard to pull off on Twitter if you're tweeting all the time and your positions are always very clear or you're very positiony. But yeah. I but I've I've I'm noticing that when I find those people it's very gratifying and and marvelous. Nothing delights me more than and it only takes one tweet to do this when I read a critic tweet there were some things I didn't like about this movie, but overall I thought it was pretty good. Like a B, a B plus <laughs> is the rarest tweet in history. Yeah. You know, there were some good things and some bad things. You yeah. know, hopefully you do it more articulately and more interestingly than that. But it's so, someone who's willing to put out in a tweet that they are still working their way through something. Yeah. That person definitely gets my attention as a critic. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, that's great to hear, but I would say not just in short form, but in long form as well. Mm. The attention economy of today does not exactly reward mixed positive or mixed negative. Right. Mm. Right. That's true. Which, I mean, if we look at, you know, the history of criticism, you know, you can look at a Manny Farber piece, many of the finest observations that he has made I can't for the life of me figure out if they are in praise of or in condemnation of the work that they're talking about. And that is a kind of form of address to work that is not really heavily supported Mm. by the current attention economy, which demands masterpieces or complete misfires. And particularly, I think about this as somebody who just rewatched Heaven's Gate today (laughs) if a movie that is more than a few years old is going to be discussed it must be discussed in terms of being a 
you know, maligned masterpiece. It right. can't right. be interesting right. for any other reason. And right. the truth of the matter is there are not a ton of forgotten masterpieces <laughs> right. waiting. There's not a lot of gold to be panned still. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not, to, you know, not to say that they're entirely gone. It doesn't mean these things aren't worth seeing, aren't worth talking about, but the language just isn't there. It's either forgotten masterpiece or justly forgotten. Mm -hmm. Right. Everything is so binary. But I think we should pause to just note that when we're talking about the very concept of what kind of criticism is rewarded and what isn't, we should just remember that that itself is a relatively new thing. Mm -hmm. That the whole idea that reaction is quantifiable and and that you can measure your tweets in, in, in your, your your the success of your criticism in likes or faves or responses or retweets or page views or page views obviously which is a much deeper even kind of more insidious way that performance i mean when i started working in journalism in the late 80s and early 90s the first magazine job i had was a place where writers were literally not allowed to know how an issue sold or uh, what a reading study of that issue ever said or even for a long time see the letters to the editor. Uh, th there was an idea that writers should exist behind a wall where you never ever had to think about that stuff. Now there's a degree to which that was infantilizing and unhelpful and locked us out of a conversation too much, and even though the idea of a film conversation, as as you Nick say in your piece, is very iffy and not like a real conversation, mm. getting no feedback ever was not any good either, except from your editor. But when you can write 140 characters and then watch in real time to see whether that 140 characters can be judged a success or a failure and tweak your future writing accordingly, we have gone too far in a terrible direction. Hmm. Well, to piggyback on that, it's one thing to, as a writer, have to you know, suffer whatever anxieties or vicissitudes come from being hyper aware of your metrics at all time. Mm -hmm. It's still another thing when one's usefulness to an editor is entirely incumbent on those metrics consistently mm -hmm being up to a certain bar because, I mean, as we all know, the profits in as much as they exist in this game now come from advertisers hmm. who are to, I think, an unprecedented degree able to take the pulse uh, and see what is working and what is not and dictate the script to a perhaps unprecedented degree to those editors. So whatever the unwanted mental uh, anguish that comes with having at all times before you a relative indicator of what your worth or what your most recent piece is worth is, that's one thing. But that these metrics entirely determine the prioritization of what is and what is not important is still another. And that mm. takes away really the most essential duty of criticism uh, as aided by a trusting editorial staff, which is the duty to assign importance, to say, 
I don't know, Eduardo Williams's The Human Surge is an important movie that you should, as somebody who is interested in what is happening in film art, be aware of and you should attend to. Whatever is currently happening on The Walking Dead is not important. You don't need to know about that because you know we as a masthead are assigning importance in one place, deciding not to assign it in another. Right. And this is all terribly undermined when metrics call the shots completely. We want to talk about differences. I think that if you look at uh, you know places that run TV recaps, mm. they'll continue to run extremely negative TV recaps until the show is canceled. As long as the show is on, they will continue to cover it. Like that editorial discretion, because it's like, well, at least someone is watching and someone will be interested to know X, Y, Z. Even if what the critic is actually saying is just like, this is worthless. Mm -hmm. So I think before when I was sort of talking about if you're going to react in terms of reacting, calling something out, having two legitimate points and then having some padding on it. It's like this weird perpetual motion machine that you always have to feed the beast, whatever you want to call it, you know, it's, but then there's also sometimes it's having that response is excellent when the New York times away, it's editorial focus has really shifted and incorporated a lot more diverse voices and sort of coming at certain works, not as impenetrable things or with this false universal voice. But Nick, you know, the value that you were just talking about, the sort of eroding value of a publication deciding that this is worth your attention, this is not worth your attention, that is kind of under siege to draw a political analogy sort of from, from both the cultural right and the cultural hard left. Mm -hmm. Like the seething and sneering about, you know, the death of gatekeeper culture. Mm -hmm. You know, the idea that there there was once this set of Olympian people who arrogated unto themselves the opportunity to assign value to or reject everything and that it's now been replaced or being replaced by something more democratic and fair and populist. I mean, it all sounds good until you actually examine it. And it's a really hard argument to make. It's hard to counter that without sounding like an elitist. But a publication assigning value is really just a bunch of people who have thought really long and really hard about the same stuff that you love, trying to shape that into a coherent philosophy of what they mm. present. And there's nothing really wrong with that. There would be something terribly wrong with that if there was only one publication in the world. But there <laughs> right. are many. So like we could all right. be a little more chill about it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what you just described, um, these people who are sitting around thinking about, about what to assign in terms of the interests of the publication and of the audience, you know, there are apps that do that for people and we don't have a problem <laughs> with like, you know, like taste apps that rely on whatever metric to tell us what we should listen to. Or, you know, I just for myself discovered the thing on Spotify, Discover Weekly. Mm -hmm. It's fantastic, but I appreciate when a publication does essentially the same thing by not bombarding me with an article about to like some of your horrifying pieces about superhero movies that are going to be around until I'm dead. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, Spider-Man 50. Like I think by that point I would actually, you know, I don't care. On the other hand, I'm finding that because, you know, I, for example, don't particularly care about Adam Sandler movies anymore, but they make so much money apparently that I do like being forced for my own sanity to really have to look hard 
and see if there's anything there for me to write about. Um, I mean, I don't always like it. I don't always like being forced to do it. But mm-hmm. but in that case, it actually turned out to be fruitful. I mean, the metrics thing is hard. And if, if, if metrics are what's at stake, film is not, in, in a TV and Twitter era, film is not going to do very well. But Well, I mean, I think in order to sort of explain the disappearance of this prioritizing of what is and is not worthy of attention it goes back to you know a point i was speaking to earlier there's just so much virtual ink being spilled mm-hmm. every single day i mean a spin magazine in 1994 had a finite number of column issues to mm. fill so certain decisions had to be made with regards to you know editorially or critically a banner was going to be carried for nobody faces those decisions anymore it's not like anybody is thinking okay will we run recaps of i'll just say the walking dead again because mm-hmm. i don't know any television shows <laughs> um because that show's still on <laughs> it might, is it, it yes it, it is there's uh, a second one or bowl <laughs> <laughs> Say bowl. That new show bowl. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody is deciding. Can we? Can we're going to have to cut the bowl recaps so that we can, you know, talk about the new tenor at the Metropolitan Opera. Like, right? You we're, can just run it all. Yeah, we're unbound mm. by Cartesian space. <laughs> and the genie is not going back in the bottle. Mm. Certainly, uh, we're not. We're not returning to the age of Gutenberg anytime soon, Steve. I mean. Um. <laughs> and I don't want the genie back in the bottle. I mean, I grew up learning how to write to space and as a journalist, and it was a good skill. It's not one I cherish and, you know, like, oh, I wish I could only do, you know, a certain number of words on every topic and everything had to conform to it. Like, that is a good discipline to have. It's also good not to have to be bound by sure. it. I mean, mm-hmm. as, as a one-time editor, I read a lot of, Pros now or that's meant for online where I think the two paragraphs of this that you would have had to cut in order to get into print would really help. I mean, it, it this would be a better piece if it were shorter. And there are other pieces where I read where I'm so glad that didn't happen. Hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I should say I do not for a moment want to give the impression that as much as I do like to wax kind of nostalgic over my idea of the like, green eye shade like printer's devil era (laughs) and uh you know when a free weekly was a free weekly as much as i do sometimes give free reign to a tendency to wax nostalgic as i say about that it already happened and i'm fine with the fact that you know i was able to participate to a certain extent in that and i'm excited about the possibilities of what something other than that provides but you know i also have my apocalyptic side uber for instance what is their model they say okay so here's a little extra money for people who want to drive around if you want to do it and now there are people who because of the recession they've gotten laid off they can't find another job they drive uber full time Uber ultimately wants to replace all of its cars with driverless cars. So what is going to happen to that class of people who are making ends meet or it's their full-time job? What happens to those people? We don't have an answer for that. Uber certainly doesn't have an answer for that because it's not, that's not in their interest to have an answer. 
And I feel like the fact that like right now we're relying on advertising, which is a carryover from the print era. The print era advertising was way inflated. And that's why, you know, magazines could look the way they did and have these sort of elaborate things, blah, 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 blah. Because we have something as precise as page views, because the internet is diffuse as it is, page views are low and internet advertising revenue is relatively, is much lower. So there needs to be another better idea to come along and who is going to think of that and where that is going to come from to be determined <laughs> because it doesn't seem like anybody like writers are hurting writers are definitely hurting but there's also a ton of writers who will write for little to nothing well i think a common through line which kind of runs through a lot of topics which we've touched on be it uber drivers who have more or less completely deflated the value of a New York City taxi cab medallion yes. to nothing, be it the vast Ronin army of freelancers, be it the fact that we have a stone-dumb motherfucker currently running for president, what it all returns to is the delegitimization of expertise. Yeah. And the decision that this is not something that inordinate value should be placed on. And in as much as there is something that I truly do despair about, not that Twitter is going to bring the discourse down into the muck, it's this. Mm -hmm. So we will actually close on that apocalyptic note. <laughs> please subscribe to the magazine please pay money for the app if you so desire if you need to read something on your phone or you're on your tablet but before we close as we always do it would be nice if we went around and each said a film that we had seen recently that we liked my film actually isn't a film it comes oh. from the golden age of television 1973 and it is roberto rossellini's the age of medici to briefly uh, give background, in about the last decade of his life, Rossellini did this very vast network of television films and theatrical films, which were essentially in, well, hopping all over the timeline, some, you know, 3,000 years of human history, trying to create a comprehensive drama of human ideas. And I was inspired to go back to these wonderful, wonderful two little scene movies by a crummy knockoff that I saw at the Toronto International Film Festival, <laughs> the name of which will go unspoken. But I had such a transcendently wonderful time watching The Age of Medici. And the last episode, to bring things back up a little bit, has a wonderful scene. It's the end of the third episode, third and final episode, in which you have Leon Alberti Batista and a very young Lorenzo de Medici standing outside of Rome. It's a complete fabrication. Uh, Battisti was dead 20 years before uh, Lorenzo de Medici was born. But a beautiful scene where Batista is talking about all of the incredible accomplishments that he has seen in his lifetime. Among these, he counts the flowering of a uh, artistic renaissance in Florence, bankrolled in large part by Lorenzo's grandfather, Cosmo de Medici. I'm paraphrasing very badly, but he says something along the lines of, you know, when I, when I was young, the artist was thought as nothing more than an artisan, now he's raised to something like the level of a god. And we started to value genius in Florence. And because of that, because we value genius, we have so many geniuses among us. 
This was a very, very touching moment for me. My last great movie was actually this morning. Um, we watched My Own Private Idaho, which turns 25 this week. And I'd seen it as a teenage boy, baby's first criterion. And this time I was really just blown away by uh, how sensitive and light that movie is. I guess in my mind, like even though I'd seen the movie, I remembered it being a dark tale of teen boy prostitutes, whereas this is a, a loving, loose, and quite funny, I think, um, movie. And also, I mean, I, I'm a stand for Keanu Reeves, mm-hmm. for River Phoenix, of course, but uh, I was really was blown away by how much I got out of it this time, frankly. I'm going to pick a movie that I just saw on VOD called Miss Stevens um, by a first-time director. I think her name is Julia Hart. Mm -hmm. I'm watching a lot of American indies on VOD right now, which is where most of them live, and I'm struck by the fact that as much as with studio movies, uh, there there is so much that just makes you sigh and give up in the first 15 minutes the the the, the conventions the the tropes the clichés uh, are as familiar and and tedious as any kind of summer franchise thing and so when you see a movie that is so much better than that it jumps out at you really quickly you know in new york i think we're privileged to get to see a lot of really good actors in theater who eventually make it into movies. So we knew about Lily Rabe, who is the star of this movie, for the last few years. And there's this young boy in it, he's about 20 years old, named Timothy Chalamet, who just won the Lortel Award for Best Actor in an Off-Broadway Play last spring, and he is the co-star of this movie. It's about a high school teacher who takes three kids on a trip to like a a regional drama club final where they're all competing. Very small, very modest in scale, but just exactly right. Beautifully observed, deeply understands what it means to be a teacher who's 29 years old, plays interestingly with the line of like what is an appropriate relationship with a student and what isn't. Written really thoughtfully and acted by people who just 100% know how to fill in their characters and deepen them so that they really linger with you. And it's such a pleasure to see an indie that holds itself to that kind of rigor uh, and thoughtfulness and wit and emotion and really nails it. And as far as reviews went, it sort of comes and goes. It's on that page in the New York Times that where nine other features are reviewed and there's there's no mechanism right now for people to sort through the 20 movies that open in New York a week and so when I see one like this I really want to give it its due so Miss Stevens on VOD and to close I saw for the first time somehow Naked Gun from the Files of Police Squad (laughs) (laughs) I had never seen it before And it's funny, I feel like an issue maybe we dance around is this sort of like policing and this political correctness that exists now, which is some of it's good, some of it is bad. Police Squad is just utterly stupid and silly. And there's a part of the movie where Leslie Nielsen is like climbing along a, a, a building that he's just set on fire by accident. And he grabs this woman's gigantic breasts and each one goes a wooga when he squeezes it. There's also a part that I just... Kept saying out loud, 
this is so stupid and laughing so much. There are just so many little funny things in the film. And I think it's sort of sad to see with the advent of like gross out humor, the intricate type of gags and like the just the silliness of that type of movie or that type of parody really went away. And it's sad. And so it's nice to have Leslie Nielsen in a cop car eating, uh, look like his, he has lipstick on because he's just eating a bunch of red pistachios and then open up the car door. And there's just a, like a mountain of red pistachio shells. I don't know why that's funny, but it is. Uh, so anyway, thank you all for coming. This was wonderful. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comet is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comet has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomet.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. <laughs> <laughs>